Good morning, Life Church. Glad that you're with us this morning. It is um, good to be back with you. Um, a few of you um, were aware of the fact that I was ill for a few weeks. Um, finally, you know, after avoiding it for about two years, I did test positive for COVID-19 a few weeks back. Um, thankfully, by the Lord's grace, my symptoms were pretty mild, and uh, I'm back at work today, and so I'm glad for that. I'm also glad for Pastor Matt, who was able to fill in capably for me while I was away, um, and glad that I'm not having my nose swabbed anymore, because we all know by now probably that's not particularly pleasant. Yeah, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5 this morning, if you have a Bible with you, or a Bible app on uh, your phone, that's where we need to be. Uh, one of the things that really drives the way we do ministry here at Life Church, this is in fact one of our core values, we believe that God's Word is powerful. That means we believe that the Lord shows up in a unique and significant way among His people when His people posture themselves under His Word. And so often I'll say we believe that it is the Holy Spirit of God doing the work of God through the Word of God among the people of God. In other words, God shapes us and forms us and transforms us when we put our lives under His Word. And so that's why, just as a regular habit here at Life Church, um, we walk through books of the Bible, piece at a time after piece at a time, because we believe that that is the place where we can hear the voice of God and experience the transforming work of God's Spirit. That's why we're in the book of Joshua this winter and spring. That's why we're in Joshua 5 this morning. Um, I'm eager to be in Joshua 5, 1 through 9 with you today. It's a a unique passage, a challenging passage in certain respects. Um, Joshua 5 is also really like a transition in the book of Joshua. So if you've been with us through Joshua 1 through 4, you've seen that chapters 1 through 4 are really all about Israel, God's people preparing to enter into the promised land. And so chapters 1 through 4, the big idea is preparation. In chapters 6 through 12, the big idea is conquest. Right, that's when God's people are actually in the promised land and they are defeating the enemies that remain in the promised land. You know, the people that they have to remove from the land so that they can in turn inhabit the land themselves. And so 1 through 4, it's all about preparation. 6 through 12, it's all about conquest. But as we're going to see today, chapter 5 is really about a moment of transition. And so let's look at the word together so that we can see what that moment of transition is really all about and so that we can see what it means for us today. So let me read for us Joshua 5, verses 1 through 9. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come up out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt 
had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Church, this is God's word for us today. Let's pray again, asking him to help us understand and obey it. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are soft before you today as we listen to your voice in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, now I haven't actually asked Matt this question, um, but all week long I've been sort of assuming that Matt was a bit grateful and maybe even relieved that my COVID quarantine ended before we got to this particular passage, right? I mean, you read it. How many, how many times did I say the word circumcision as I read through the passage? It's like a dozen at least. In verse 2, like it's the command that kind of gets this whole thing started. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And I'll be honest, I mean, I've read a lot of books about this particular passage this week. I've studied commentaries. I've been in this text all week long, and I've been working very hard to try not to picture this whole event. And especially not to imagine even for a moment what it might have felt like, right? Like if you read that command, circumcise the sons of Israel a second time, and you're like comfortable with this idea, then I just want to say like I have a good counselor that I can recommend to you, right? Because our, our natural, like visceral, instinctive response to this should be to cringe. I think that that's appropriate. Which means we have a little bit of work to do if we're going to figure out what is going on here, right? This is an odd picture, an odd passage. Like, what is in this, and what is in this for us? Right, again, the Bible tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and for training in righteousness. And so, there is something here that is profitable for us. What is it? Well, to to get there... I need to answer two questions, one really quickly and then one slightly more elaborately. And so the first question is, what's the big deal with circumcision anyway? Right? What's circumcision all about, really? And we ask that question because circumcision is still practiced today in many cultures, including in ours. And so circumcision today primarily exists for medical reasons. Why did it exist in the Old Testament? What was it all about in the Old Testament? Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign and seal of covenant relationship with God. We read about it first in Genesis chapter 17, where God makes a bunch of promises to Abraham, 
And then Abraham, in response to those promises, is to trust God in faith and walk in obedience. And the sign and seal of Abraham's intention to walk in obedience to that covenant relationship with God is circumcision. In that respect, circumcision is a bit like the wedding ring on my finger. Right? This is a sign and seal of my covenant relationship with Kristen Sharp. When someone else sees this ring on my hand, it is an indicator to them that I am in a covenant relationship with Kristen. When I see or feel this ring on my finger, it's a reminder to me that I am in a covenant relationship with Kristen Sharp. And I don't need that reminder on a regular basis, but it is there for me anytime I see this ring or feel this ring. In the same way, that's how circumcision worked in the Old Testament. It was an outward and an inward sign and seal of obedience to the covenant relationship with God. And God told Abraham and all the generations that came after him that they were to continue to practice circumcision as a way of continuing to indicate we're in relationship with God. We trust God, we obey God, we follow God. So that's what circumcision is all about. But what's going on in this passage in particular? Why a second time? What does that really mean? Well, to answer that, I need to point out something about the structure of this passage. Like, I want you to think with me for a couple of minutes about the way that the narrator of the book of Joshua has written verses 2 through 9 especially. Because as we look really carefully at this, we're going to see that the narrator has, has written this in a, like the fancy word that literary scholars might use and the Bible scholars use, He's written a chiasm here. Rather than that word, I think it's easier just to think about this passage as it's structured like a sandwich. And let me show you what I mean for a minute. Look at verses 2 and 9 and compare those two verses together with me for a minute. Because what you'll notice is that in both of these verses, God speaks directly to Joshua. Right In verse 2, he says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, and then here's God's direct speech, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And then if you skip ahead to verse 9, you'll notice that we again have direct speech from the Lord to Joshua, and it's even introduced exactly the same way. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the narrator here, he's doing this on purpose. Like he's starting and ending this whole section on circumcision with the same kind of statement. And so I want you to think about that as like the bread of this sandwich, right? The thing that is going to hold the whole sandwich together, the top and the tail, if you will, right? Here, here are the ends or the bookends of this whole idea or the bread in a sandwich. If you move in one verse from each direction to verses 3 and 8, these are verses that function sort of as like the condiments on your sandwich. I don't know what kind of condiment you put on your sandwich, mayo or mustard. My preference is like a really fat layer of hummus. That's my favorite thing to put on a sandwich condiment-wise. But like these verses are the condiments. And I want you to notice that they're the same because in each verse, the narrator tells us that Joshua does exactly what God told him to do. So look at verse 3. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haralot. Now, just a quick footnote, my Bible tells me, maybe yours does too, that the place name, Gibeath Haralot, means Hill of the Foreskins. Now, I was tempted this week to make a number of jokes about that. 
Pastor Matt said last week from the stage that I'm not funny, and so I thought better about it. And also, most of the jokes I was tempted to make probably would have cost me my job. So we'll just consider it grace to all of us that I'm not going to pause and make some of the jokes that I'm tempted to make there. But my point is, verse 3, right, notice, Joshua does exactly what God tells him to do. Then skip ahead to verse 8. Again, Joshua has done exactly what God told him to do. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And so verses 2 and 9, they're similar. Verses 3 and 8, they're similar. Now we're going to come in one more time and notice another similarity, this time between verses 4 and 5 and verse 7. And so this is like the vegetables on your sandwich, right? I don't know what kind of vegetables you eat on your sandwich. Lettuce, tomato, these are common. Any vegetable you want to put on your sandwich is fine, so long as it's not kale. But look at the vegetables on this particular sandwich, right? Verse 4, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. There are people who are new here who don't know that I'm like on this passionate like campaign to end kale. And then there are also some kale farmers in our church who really don't like it when I say that. But anyway, don't put kale on your sandwich. Verse 4, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. So the thing that's similar in verses 4 and 5 and verse 7 is that we're learning the reason why Joshua had to do this thing. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. And so the people who were born in Egypt circumcised their sons. The people who came out of Egypt did not circumcise their sons. That's the reason why Joshua is commanded to do this. And then that's echoed in verse 7. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And so verses 4 and 5 and verse 7, they mirror one another one more time. Verses 2 and 9, verses 3 and 8, verses 4 and 5, and then verse 7 right there, they mirror one another, which leads us to what is at the very center of this passage. And that's the meat on the sandwich, right? Always the most important part of your sandwich, right? Anything else that you put on your sandwich is extra, but the meat is what makes it a sandwich. If you don't believe that, again, I know a good counselor to recommend. But look at verse 6. This is the heart of the passage. The narrator says, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So why is it that Joshua had to circumcise the sons of Israel? Why is it that the people who came out of Egypt did not enter into the promised land? Why is it that the Exodus generation did not get to inhabit the land flowing with milk and honey? Well, that's the meat of the sandwich. Verse 6 says, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. God commanded circumcision. Israel practiced circumcision. But this Exodus generation, the people who came out of Egypt, they didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. And so they stopped obeying what God commanded. Now, every generation at every place, in every time, through all of human history, has worked to, instinctively, has worked to develop 
like a particular vision of the good life. What I mean is that every people and every place at every time, like we've created for ourselves an understanding of the way we hope our lives go. Now, the truth is that those definitions of the good life, they've changed a great deal over time and in different places. Um, they're shaped by a lot of different factors. For example, culture is something that shapes our understanding of or our definition of the good life. These are stereotypes and generalizations, of course, but in general, people who come from Asian and African and Latino cultures, they'll define the good life in communal terms. What I mean is that their understanding of the good life is life lived in right relationship with the people of a certain kind of community. Whereas on the other hand, Westerners, especially white Westerners, we tend to define the good life in primarily individualistic terms. Like our hopes and dreams are all bound up in individual self-expression, not in the idea of community. And then generationally, this changes as well. In other words, baby boomers tend to have a very different definition of the good life than millennials do or members of Generation Z do. By the way, one of my children had the audacity of calling me a boomer this week, um, which was just a really great excuse for me to remind that particular child how much smarter than him I am. And I'm just doing that one more time right now because he's sitting in the room hearing me remind you all of how much smarter than him I am. But anyway, you know baby boomers, that's my parents' generation, not my generation. Um, baby boomers, they tended to define the good life um, in terms of comfort and security. So in other words, a life well-lived, according to many baby boomers, is a life in which, you know, your family's provided for well, things are stable and secure, and then you've raised children who also in turn are good and respectable people who then provide for their families comfort and security and stability. Contrast that with like millennials or members of Generation Z who tend to define the good life in individualistic terms of like self-expression. In other words, like to a millennial, the good life means you figured out who you really are. Like you found your identity. And no one has tried to keep you from living out that true self-discovered identity. Now, I'm saying all of this not to say that one generation or another has a particularly good idea about what the good life is. And I'm not saying that there's one culture or another that has a particularly good idea about what the good life is. I think we can rightly commend and critique certain things in virtually every definition of the good life that is out there. But I'm going down this rabbit hole because I want to point out that there is a consistent theme across time and place. Every people in every generation for all of time, there's a consistent theme in the way that we construct our definition of the good life. It's pretty simple. We want the right to determine the way our lives should go. In other words, every people in every culture at all times in all places has decided that the good life is something that we determine for ourselves. And we resist and reject anyone outside of us who tries to tell us the way we ought to live our lives. Think about ancient Israel here in the story for a minute. Think about the things that the people in the Exodus generation witnessed with their own eyes. Now, the Exodus generation, 
That means the people who were enslaved in Egypt when God raised up Moses and sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. What kinds of things did the people of the Exodus generation witness? Well, they saw the Lord turn the Nile River to blood in an instant. They saw the Lord send hail and frogs and flies and locusts and a host of other plagues against the Egyptians. They saw the first Passover when the Lord sent the angel of death to the nation of Egypt. And the firstborn son and the firstborn of all the herds died in an instant overnight And the sons of the Israelites were spared because they put the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts. Then the Israelites saw, they witnessed with their own eyes, the mighty hand of God in releasing the chokehold of slavery in Egypt. They saw with their own eyes the waters of the Red Sea part before them. They felt with their own feet the dry ground underneath their feet as they passed through the Red Sea. And then they turned over their shoulders and saw with their own eyes those same waters come crushing down on Pharaoh's army as he chased after them. The Israelites saw with their own eyes the pillar of cloud that led them at night, the pillar of I'm sorry, the pillar of cloud that led them by day, the pillar of fire that led them at night. They saw with their own eyes when they needed water to drink, Moses striking the rock and water gushing from that rock for them to drink. They saw with their own eyes day after day after day, the Lord provide manna for them to eat when there was nothing else to eat as they wandered in the wilderness. And they saw with their own eyes when enemy nations rose up against them to come and fight them, they saw with their own eyes the Lord crush them by his mighty hand. In other words, the people of Israel, they had a front row seat to witness the glory of God on display time and time again as he led them out of Egypt and into the promised land. They witnessed the dynamic and mighty acts of God time and time and time again. But despite all of that, they were not particularly inclined to pursue God's definition of the good life. They lived their way, not God's way. They decided for themselves how their lives ought to go. They did not humble themselves and submit to the voice of the Lord who redeemed them and who sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years. No. How do we know that they didn't? It's because of what verse 6 says. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Now, when you think about what the people of Israel saw and experienced, that's really an incredible statement, isn't it? It's really a statement that ought ought to make us tremble a bit. Because it means that it's possible to witness the glory of God firsthand to have a front row seat to the mighty acts of God and still to prefer our own vision of the good life over God's. It means that it's possible to know beyond a shadow of a doubt God's power and his faithfulness, yet to still to prefer our own way, rejecting his commands and his authority. Right? I mean, the Israelites, they knew that God was powerful. They knew that God cared about them. They knew that God was faithful to his covenant commitments to them. Yet still they did not obey him. They didn't care to circumcise their sons and 
The text makes it so clear. It's not like they just forgot one time. For 40 years in the wilderness, they chose not to obey the commands of God. Do you see the heart issue that is right there on display? And does that heart issue not make you tremble just a bit? This means that it's possible to be familiar with the sacred in a way that leads us to disregard the sacred. This means that it's possible to be so familiar with the glory of God, not to know it really, but to just be familiar with it in a way that makes us complacent and lethargic, spiritually dull, spiritually sleepy. And brothers, sisters, I hope you won't think that it's only the people of Israel who could be guilty of those things. Like, I need you to know that we're not smarter than the people of Israel. We're not more spiritually sophisticated than the people of Israel. We don't have our spiritual acts together in a way that they did not, which means we're just as capable of this same kind of hardness of heart and spiritual indifference that they are. I know that's true because the Apostle Paul told us that's true. This is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And then listen to how he describes the Exodus generation. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, right? He's talking about these very people in Joshua 5, the people who came out of slavery in Egypt under the mighty hand of God. But then notice what he says in verse 5. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, though they witnessed the glory of God face to face, most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he adds, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Brothers and sisters, we should read that and conclude that it's possible and even very likely that we are just as spiritually complacent as the ancient Israelites were. We should read that and conclude that we are just as spiritually dull and lethargic as the Israelites were. We should conclude that we're just as tempted toward hard-heartedness and toward desiring evil as the Israelites were. In fact, we might be so spiritually sleepy that we can't even see that in ourselves. Spiritually speaking, we might be the frog in the pot getting boiled to death just slowly day after day after day. If that can happen to Israel, it can happen to me. It can happen to all of us. How would we know if that was happening to us? I'm glad you asked. Let me throw out just a couple of questions that you could use this morning to diagnose your own heart. The temptation here as you think about these questions is going to be to think about other people. But I just want to urge you today, think about yourself first. Allow these questions to be like a mirror into the condition of your own heart. 
Number one, how real has God been to your heart this week? Or to put that another way, like how clear and vivid have his majesty and power and glory been to you? But have you had a sense of just how real and awesome and holy he is? Have you had a sense of how intimate and tender, how loving and fatherly he is? When you've thought about God, have you had a real sense of his presence in your life? And have you had real seasons in which you enjoy the character of God? Not the things that God does for you, but simply who God is. Have you enjoyed him in that way? Number two, have you been finding Scripture to be alive and active? Ask yourself that question. Is Scripture just another book to you? Are the stories of Scripture just stories that you've heard before? Or do you have a sense sometimes that when you read the Bible, it's coming at you? Like it's spoken to you. Like it may be that there's benefit for other people too, but it's like God has been reading your mail and, and he knows exactly what you need to hear and he tells you exactly what you need to hear through his word. Have you had a sense that scripture is coming at you like that? Are there specific promises in the Bible that are becoming more encouraging to you, more real to you? Are you able to like stand more solidly on specific things that the Bible says to you? Is God, through his word, calling you to something new, something deeper? Like, are you finding new ways to repent of sin, new commands to obey? And when you find those things, when you read those things, do you say, I'm not going to do that? Or is your heart soft? Right? Are you eager to put into practice what you have read? Have you been finding Scripture to be alive and active? Third, are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than in the past? Or do you have a growing sense of the evil in your own heart? Like, do you have an increasing awareness of how despicable your sin is? Which, by the way, doesn't mean that you have to be sinning more. You can have this increasing awareness of how despicable your sin is even as you happen to sin less. Right, what's becoming bigger is not your sin, but your awareness of your own sinfulness. What's becoming bigger is not the evil that you do, but your awareness of the evil that lurks still in your own heart. Is that growing? Or do you have a growing and increasing delight in the work of Jesus for you on the cross? Like as your awareness of sin grows, does your delight in the cross grow as well? Those two things always go together, by the way. Right? You can't have an increasing delight in the cross without an increasing awareness of your own sin. Like if your awareness of your own sin is small, like if you think of your sin as something that's just like a small problem in your life, then the cross of Jesus will also always seem incredibly small to you. It's only when your sin problem seems massive to you that the cross will seem massive and glorious. So ask yourself, are you finding God's grace to be more glorious and moving now than in the past? How real has God been? Have you been finding Scripture to be alive and active? 
Are you finding God's grace to be more glorious and moving now than in the past? Now, if you sit here, I hope, I hope you're really sitting with those questions. I hope you're not just like processing that. I hope that you're internalizing that and that your answer to those questions is either clearly yes or no. What do you do? Well, if your answer is yes, right, if you are finding God to be real, if you are finding Scripture to be increasingly true and powerful, if your delight in the gospel is growing, let me just suggest this morning a posture that you should assume before God and others. That posture is humble confidence. Right? If, if you're really born again, then that should produce in you a humble confidence before God and before others. It'll be humble because you will know that you have been saved entirely by grace, that there's nothing about you or in you, nothing in your past, nothing in your present, nothing in your future. There's nothing about you that makes God say, huh, you know, that guy seems like somebody worth saving. No, the thing that makes God say that person seems like somebody worth saving is entirely in God and not in you. And so that will produce a humility in you. Right, and Christians who have been grasped by the gospel, there is no room for swagger. We will not strut around boasting in how spiritually superior we are to other people. So there will be no swagger, but there will also be no fear. Right? We won't be fragile. The wind won't blow us over. When somebody says something about us, that won't knock us down. When we stumble and stray into sin, that won't cause us to come falling apart again. Right? When life hits us in the teeth, we will be stable. We'll be confident before God because we will be sure of his love for us. That's this posture of humble confidence. Like in prayer, you can assume that posture of humble confidence. That means humble because you know that God's not listening to your prayers because of anything you've done. Confident because you know that your access to the throne of grace is bought by the blood of Jesus for you. And so you pray humbly confident before God. When you sin, humble confidence. That means that you, you genuinely demonstrate remorse and sorrow over your sin, and your sin humbles you, causing you to think, why in the world did God choose to save me? But confidence in the fact that God did choose to save you, and therefore as a result of that, your sin does not harm your relationship with him because nothing will ever separate you from his love for you in Christ Jesus. When people correct you, when people rebuke you, when people get in your face and tell you where you're wrong, I hope you have somebody who loves you enough to, in love and with wisdom, correct you and rebuke you when you're wrong. Like if you really have grasped the gospel, you'll be able to receive that rebuke with humble confidence. Humble because you'll say to that person who's correcting you for what you've done wrong, brother, sister, if you knew what was really in my heart, you'd know that I've done a million things worse than that. But confidence, because you know that that person's opinion of you does not shape the Lord's opinion of you, and the high king of heaven has said that you are perfect and complete in the blood of his son, Jesus. And then when life falls apart, right, when like sorrow and trial and affliction come, to think about this posture of humble confidence. You'll be humble, when sorrow comes because you'll know what you really deserve. You'll know that your sin deserves 
literally hell on earth. But you'll be confident because you'll know that the Lord will keep you until the end and that any hard things that come in life are merely expressions of his fatherly discipline or consequences of sin in this world. That's the posture, humble confidence this morning. If God is real to you, if you've been finding the scripture to be probing you, if you're finding God's grace to be more glorious than in the past, praise God, I think you can respond to him with humble confidence. But what if you don't answer yes to any of those questions? Right? What if God has not been real to you? What if, he's, what if scripture is not alive and active to you? What if the cross is the same to you today as it was yesterday? Or what if you answer no to all of those questions? What do you do? Well, maybe I can put it this way. I'll close with this. I remember when I was 18 years old, a brand new Christian myself, sitting um, in a Bible study for college students at the church I was attending when I was in college. And um, there's a, a Bible teacher there, a pastor, his name was Cliff and there were probably like 40 or 50 of us in the room. Um, and I remember, like he made this point this way. And I can really still see his face saying these things. I can still hear his voice saying these things because like, it just lodged like an arrow in my heart. And so maybe, let me ask you to think about Jesus this way. This is what Cliff said. He picked up a piece of paper, like this piece of paper right here. And he said, I want you to imagine that this piece of paper represents the distance between the earth and the surface of the sun. Now, I looked it up this week. That means 92 million miles. That's the distance between the earth and the surface of the sun. But he said, imagine that this piece of paper right here represents the distance from here to the sun. Now, the distance from here to the next nearest star beyond the sun, that would be represented by a stack of paper that is 70 feet high. And the distance from here to the edge of our galaxy, just our one galaxy, which isn't the biggest galaxy, but the distance between here to the edge of our galaxy, that would have to be represented by a stack of paper that is 310 miles high. He put his piece of paper down, and he said, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus created all of that and sustains all of that simply by speaking. That Jesus' word is so powerful that he created everything and holds everything together simply by speaking to it. That's how powerful his word is. But then he added, but Jesus isn't the kind of creator who just creates the world and lets it go. No, he saw the brokenness of the world. He saw the sin in each and every one of us, and he came to live among us and dwell among us and ultimately to die for us. And when he lived among us, he said crazy things like, I have come so that you may have life and life abundantly. And then Cliff asked this question. He said, it's the question I ask you now. He said, if Jesus is really who the Bible says that he is, and if he really created everything with the word of his power, like Hebrews 1 says he did, and if he really says that he offers life abundantly, then do you really think you know better than he does the way your life ought to go? Do you really think you have a better idea than he does of what the good life actually is? Church, that's the question before us. Will we be people like the Israelites 
who did not obey the voice of the Lord? Or will we be people who recognize that the voice of Jesus offers life? Like Simon Peter, he said, Lord, where else will we go? You and only you have the words of eternal life. May we be people who hear and cling to and believe Christ's voice and live according to it. Pray with me. Father, help us to to cling to your word. It is the only source of life. Give us the honesty and the self-awareness to be able to say, where else can we go? Nothing else is going to fill us or satisfy us. Nothing else will give us life. Only your word, only your voice. And in light of that truth, may we follow your voice. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.